right. So you can open up to Genesis 31. It's good to see you all. My name's Rob. Appreciate you all having me. Um, yeah, Genesis 31. I, I don't know um, how many of y'all have messed around with uh, Google Earth, any uh, app you can get on your laptop or your phone. And, and I, I love it. I love it for a few different applications, but uh, I love it when I'm studying. And especially like when we were going through the Gospels and we did the Sermon on the Mount, I loved using it to like zoom into those places that, especially where it seems like in the text, the geography or the topography really like comes into play on what's going on. I love to go there and see, okay, what does this look like now? You know, then try to imagine what it would have been back then. But man, I remember looking at the Sea of Galilee and just fascinating and, and loved it. And I love that you can, you know, right, you can zoom in. I mean, it's stupid and a little scary because I'm like, if they let me have this, what are they looking at? You know, like, it just, but it's crazy, like, how, how far in you can zoom down and, and like, see and then, and then zoom out and see the globe. And, okay, and you get the perspective of, okay, I can see the topography. Like, you can get down to the Sea of Galilee and get, like, you know, the level of the sea and look up at the mountains or come from the perspective of the mountains looking down at the sea and then zoom way out and see where it is on the globe. It's fascinating. And I think as we come to this chapter tonight, the approach I want to take is more of that zoom out approach. Uh, as we come to the, the close of Jacob's time with Laban, and it's been a crazy 20 years, wild 20 years, I, I want us to zoom out and see, okay, where does this story come to play in the, the big picture of God's plan for salvation? God's big picture in redemptive history. And then what does that mean to us? Because I want to, okay, stop and think, who were the original who was the original audience for the book of Genesis? That's right. The <laughs> nailed it, Emma. The the Exodus generation, right? The Exodus gen generation. The folks that God had brought out of slavery, they've been in slavery 400 years, right? The offspring of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then all of Jacob's kids, most of whom now are born in the story, like they go into Egypt just like a tribe, and then they come out a nation. And so God is reintroducing himself to his people, and they're learning who God is, and they're learning about their history, but not just for history's sake, right? There's a theological emphasis to the stories that are being told, and they're to have a practical application in their life. So what I want us to see is, okay, where does this story fall in the history of redemption? What did it mean to this Exodus generation? And then how does that apply to us today? Deal? Doesn't matter. I got the mic and I'm not wasting it. Here we go. All right. So I'm going to read. Uh, thank Zach for reading the, the whole chapter. That's really helpful. I, I want to look back at what God says here because I really think this is the key verse. The key verse is... All right, so Jacob's, he's wanted to leave for a while. Laban just has all kind of hooks in Jacob, right? He's tricked him. He's deceived him. The worst <laughs> layaway plan for a wife ever and like kept him for 14 years working and now he's had him for 20. I mean, just deception and, and, and lies and trickery and the whole nine yards. And he's, he's working for Laban and he made Laban a rich man. And then they, he's like, man, I want to go. I want to get out of here. I want to go back to the land of my fathers. And he's like, 
no, man, stay on, and listen, I'll, I'll make the deal sweeter for you. And he tries, Laban still tries to manipulate the situation where he continues to get rich off the blessings that God is giving to Jacob. But every time he changes the deal of what type of goat Jacob gets to keep, God just provides that type of goat for Jacob. And so Jacob is gone in as one man, and now he's got multiple wives. Not okay, but that's what he has. And, he, and he's, they multiply children, and now they have, I mean, all kinds of livestock. So he's leaving wealthy, and so he's ready to go. He wants to get out of there. He knows that Laban, that he's lost Laban's favor, that Laban no longer really wants to see him as his son, but he's more of an adversary now. And, and so he wants to go, and God's given him the green light, and he does it through this dream. Uh, verse 11 then the angel of God said to me in a dream, he's talking to his wives out in the field, the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flocks are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. Here's where I want us to focus. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and made a vow to me. Now rise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. So he's reminding them what happened in, in Genesis chapter 28, where he makes this vow. He says, you will be my God. You're going to be with me. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to obey you. So he'd made that promise to the Lord. And the Lord's saying, yeah, I'm that same God, and I've seen what's happening to you. I've seen the oppression from your uncle, father-in-law, Laban, and I've seen it, and I'm gonna bring you out, and I'm gonna bring you back to your own land. And so right away, again, original audience, there's two things that should come up into our minds. One is, this is super similar to how God talked to Abraham when he called him out in the first place, right? Abraham was just a pagan dude living with his family, and he said, I'm going to bring you out from among your kindred, and I'm going to give you a land. And he begins to tell him about the promised land, and that then a nation's going to ultimately come from him. And so there's an echo of those promises. But there's also, for the original audience, the Exodus generation, their minds immediately would go to the language that God used when he met Moses. Now, I couldn't help to think the, I think it was the second song that we sang tonight. Uh, all the songs are awesome, and, uh, but I was so thankful just the way the, the meaning of the songs were lining up with where the text is tonight. And we're, we're saying, okay, yeah, and, and I'm not gonna sing, and I'm probably not gonna get the words right, but here's the gist. was, you know, I look, we look back and see that you're faithful. And then we look forward and see that you're able. That's the same song they were singing thousands of years ago as they're learning this same lesson. Yeah, look back. Look back to see how God was faithful. And that, looking back at the faithfulness of God should give us the confidence that he is able to do what he's promised to do. And that meant everything to the Exodus generation because when they're learning these things, they're out of Egypt, but they're not in the promised land yet. They're in the wilderness wandering. So, let me read from Exodus 3 when God speaks to Moses. He says, uh, says this, 
And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Moses, in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. You see the consistency in the language. And so we have these like small exoduses, right? Abraham leaving Ur. Now Jacob leaving Mesopotamia. He's leaving Laban. And there's all these parallels where, yeah, like, Jacob goes in, one man, comes out with a family, doesn't have any possessions, and comes out with all this livestock. And Israel goes into Egypt, just a handful of families, and comes out a nation after plundering Egypt because God so decimated the gods of Egypt that they're just giving them their riches just so they'll get out of there. And they leave, headed towards the promised land. And then there's a pursuit. Just like Laban pursued Jacob, Pharaoh in Egypt pursued Israel. But God intervened in both situations. He intervenes with Laban by coming to him in a dream and saying, hey man, well, he didn't say that. <laughs> to paraphrase, <laughs> I feel like I should just read it now. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to be sacrilegious. That's a good joke. <laughs> All right. Oh, I can find it. Hold on. And, he, and, and God said to me, the Lord said to me, you shall not say anything to him, whether good or bad. And what God's saying to Laban is, don't try to get him to come back to you by promising awesome things, and don't try to get him to come back to you by threatening him. You're letting him go, right? And compared to Pharaoh in Egypt, Laban gets off easy. Right, we know what happened to Pharaoh and his army, man, they drowned in the bottom of the Red Sea. But in both cases, God intervenes, and his people leave, headed towards the promised land, greater and wealthier than before. So we see these parallels playing out. And so here's the main point of the sermon. Here's the main point of the sermon. In all the mess, and Adam alluded to it in our time of corporate prayer, it's been crazy. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's funny, it's been long enough. Everybody in this story is related at least twice, right? This is messed up. <laughs> it's a weird, these are weird stories, and it's hard sometimes because we're so wired to try to see whoever's being focused on as the hero. And so it's hard. There's times with Abraham, you're going, I'm trying to find something redeemable here. And a lot of times what you have to do is, well, 
get your eyes off of Abraham. That's, he's not the main point. Get your eyes off Isaac. Get your eyes off Jacob. Where's God in this story? That's where we see redemption because it's a mess. The lies and the deceit, and it's like for a while, Jacob and Laban are in a competition to see who can be you know, the, the biggest trickster, who can be more deceptive. And at least in this chapter, we start to get a glimpse of like, all right, it looks like Jacob is maturing. He's maturing in his faith. He's trusting in the Lord and taking steps of obedience, but you don't always get that chapter by chapter. It's a mess. And so in the midst of the mess, we're like, what are we supposed to learn? What are we supposed to see? We see this. God is patient. God is slow to anger. And God is faithful to his word. He's faithful to his promises. He's loyal to his people. God is loyal to the people he brings into relationship with him. And God has increased Jacob, both in family and wealth, and now is bringing him home. This is huge for the Exodus generation. They should make the connection that God has brought them out of slavery and has provided for them and has promised to bring them into their own land. Moses is telling them this story to fill them with faith, to fill them with trust in the Lord so they will trust God during their time in the wilderness, no matter how bad it is. And you might think right now, great, I'm not an ancient Israelite. Thanks for the sermon. So what, what does it mean for us? Like we're not in the wilderness, like the Sinai wilderness, walking around. No. But this has everything to do with us. Because while Abraham and Jacob were a shadow of the Exodus, which in the Old Testament is the great redemptive story of the whole Old Testament. Everything is either building up to it or referring back to it, but that in and of itself was just a shadow. The whole story of the Exodus was ultimately played out in God's sovereignty so that we would better understand the salvation that we have in Christ. Because we know Jesus has brought us out of slavery. Not to a pharaoh on the Nile, but out of the slavery of sin and the deception of the God of this age. He's rescued us from an eternity of only knowing the wrath of God. Saved us from death and damnation. And he's promised us. We're going to the promised land. New heaven, new earth. Where we will stand. <laughs> Our joy complete when we look Jesus in the face and we'll be given new, bo new bodies and we won't even have the potential to sin against God anymore, we'll be given a body made, designed just to worship and love and honor the Lord. That's our future. That's our promised land. That's our Canaan. That's our rest. But right now we're in between. We're in this wilderness where we are afflicted where we will suffer. And so we have to learn the same lessons that they learned because you know, we have a greater salvation and we have a greater promise. Jesus is the one who led our exodus. Look at uh, Luke 9, 28 and 31. It'll be on the screen behind me.
Now about eight days, so this is Jesus' Mount of Transfiguration. He, he's gonna go up there with his disciples. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and they went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. All right, raise your hand if you got the ESV. All right, everyone else? No, just kidding. All right. Uh, next to departure, and probably the other translations have this too, there should be a number one. Okay, and you see that number one, and you're like, oh, this word has a number one next to it. Now look at the, now look at the bottom of your Bible. On the page, there should be another number one. It's a little connection. What does it say? Instead of departure, what does the Greek mean? Say it loud. Exodus. Because that's literally what it means. They came to talk to Jesus about the exodus he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now why, okay, pause. Why don't they just say exodus? It literally means exodus, and it means so much more. Like, instead of just departure, you would go, oh, exodus. I know exodus. Oh, Jesus is doing the same thing Moses is doing, but greater. Why they don't do that, I don't know. But that's why the pastors get paid the big bucks, so. Yeah. Right? So we can have moments like this. Yeah, I mean, it's so clear, though, right? They came to talk to Jesus about the exodus he was about to accomplish. It's the greater exodus. So all this thing, I mean, just stop and think. Thousands of years of human history, God interacting, revealing himself back to humanity. Why did he choose to do it the way that he did it? Why would he use such jacked up, messed up people? All of it was building up to this moment so we could understand what it would mean that Jesus was about to lead an exodus. Because when Jesus led his exodus, he didn't do it the same way that Moses did. Yeah, oh, God was absolutely showing that, that he is God and there is no other. There's no power over against him, no power greater than them. If you're visiting with us, uh, the pastors here don't get paid. It's awesome. So that was a joke I was making. If you think, like, is, did he just brag about how much he's getting paid? I, I'm sorry. It was a bad joke. I feel convicted. <laughs> Moving on. Okay. It wasn't like Moses' exodus. He didn't come, there wasn't like, okay, yeah, death is gonna pass over, so take the blood of a lamb and put it on a doorway. Death will pass over, and then everyone's gonna come out because Egypt will be so beaten down. Like, no, 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 it's greater than that. Jesus is the lamb of God. It was his blood that was shed on the cross, and he went into death, into death, so that he could destroy death. He faced off with Satan's greatest enemy. This is where Genesis 3 gets fulfilled, where he's crushing the head of the serpent so that all of our enemies, all of those who would oppress us, all of those who would have claim on us are destroyed and we go free. It's our salvation. It's our exodus. And now we're moving as people who have been freed from that slavery. We're moving towards the promised land, but we're still in this world under the curse of sin. We're still striving and fighting against our flesh. And all it wants to do is serve itself. All it wants to do is bow down to idols. 
And so we're constantly in this fight, so we've got to learn this same lesson. Listen to the way Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. He uses this language to compare us to ancient Israel. He says, but you, talking to the church, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim. (laughs) Okay, see it. This is who God's made you to be. You have a new identity. To what end? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we should look back at these stories, walk away encouraged because God is faithful to his covenant, to his people. He keeps his promises. And the promises and covenant we have in Christ are so much better. We looked at it last week. That's awesome. Joseph made this point of application where he said, yeah, man, Jacob's about to walk out of here with a bunch of wives and a bunch of goats. And isn't it crazy? Like, so often, it, it, we all got, uh, uh, okay. <laughs> Too many thoughts, one mouth. Here we go. Even those of us, man, I love this church. You guys love the Bible. You love sound doctrine. And you try to walk it out. And for us, like the temptation's the same. We want to see God's favor based on material blessings. Like we're, we're still battling this flesh and it's so easy to fall into that trap. That's why human religion, demonic religion is all about idols. It's about manipulating a God to get what I want from him, right? And we're so easy, easily drawn to that. And so like, we, uh, Joseph made this point of application of, yeah, Jacob's walking out with this. The point of application is not like, so man, if your boss is mistreating you, that new job's right around the corner. Double figures. Double figures? Is that a thing? (laughs) Double your current figures. What do we make? I don't know. Your truck's been breaking down. The enemy's tempting you. There's a new truck. God's got a new truck. That blessing's coming. Like, and we don't tend to talk that way, but sometimes we kind of think and act that way. Right? Like when you came, that's not the blessings that we get. No one in here, when you said the sinner's prayer, like you didn't like get bonus wives and a flock of goats, right? Like <laughs> that's not what we get. Our blessings are spiritual and they're eternal and they're in Christ. And Joseph went to, to Ephesians chapter one. Our blessings are spiritual, that we've been chosen in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. He predestined us in love. He's forgiven us. He's redeemed us. We've been reconciled to God. The, our inheritance has been guaranteed because God has given us his Holy Spirit sealed us 
He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. Jesus made this promise. If I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come back and get you so that where I am, you may be also. Those are our blessings. Those are our promises. And that's what we hold fast to. We look back and we know that he's faithful. We hear these stories and it should enrich our faith. And we look forward and we say, yeah, my life isn't about the here and now. It's about an eternity spent with Jesus, worshiping him in his presence where sin is no more, where the pain and the temptations and the disappointments and all the mess of life is wiped away as if it were just a tear on your cheek. It's gone. It's not remembered anymore. We look into the face of Jesus and there's only joy and pleasure. We celebrate for all eternity. We need that confidence right now while we're in the in-between, while we're trying to be faithful. And what, and what did Peter say? Why do we need to know that? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. We sang it, right? Oh, how awesome are your ways. How majestic is your name in all the earth. We should proclaim that not just in here amongst ourselves, but this week as we go in our different directions. Proclaim it. Proclaim how good Jesus is. Proclaim how good his exodus is. Offer that exodus, offer that freedom to people you work with, people that you're gonna be around. So the story continues, right? And there's this, most of it's pretty straightforward, but there's this weird moment Rachel, like they, they timed their escape when Laban's gonna go in the field and shear his sheep. Laban's like, we'll do that later. Or Jacob's like, we'll do that later. Like, camel up, let's go. And Rachel sneaks into Laban's tent and he, she steals his idols. She steals his household gods. And you're like, okay. And there's all kinds of speculation about why she did this. Is it because it was... Were they fertility idols or, you know, were they a, a mark of whoever had them has the right to the inheritance or was she just still like, you know, going to worship multiple gods? Yeah, I'll follow Yahweh and all these other gods. Is she still there? Like, or is she thinking, well, Laban will use them to like pray to them and find out which direction we've gone. So if I take them, he can't use them. All kinds of speculation. We don't know. Maybe it's all of those reasons, but she takes them. And when Laban catches up with Jacob, you know, and they, they face off and they're just yelling at each other, if you picture it in your mind, and he's accusing Jacob of stealing away, and he's like, why would you run away? And Jacob's like, why? You've been ripping me off for 20 years. Like, why did I run away? And they're blasting away at each other, and he says, why'd you take my gods? And Jacob said, we didn't take your gods, man. You find somebody here that took your gods, you can kill them. We don't have your gods. And then Laban goes and he starts looking around the tents. Look at this, verse uh, 33. So Laban went into Jacob's tents and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them, speaking about his idols. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt about the tent, but did not find them. 
And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. And then Jacob blasts him some more, like 20 years built up. He gets it off his chest, but it's, a, it's such a weird part of the story. Like, what, what's going on? And it's fascinating because, like, Laban, who doesn't trust anybody, he's a liar and trickster, like, and this is his baby girl. I, I mean, she's sitting on a saddle. Like, my, mind's, I'm like, my mind, I'm like, come on, dude. What, what, what's going on? Well, whether or not she's telling the truth, because she says it's, you know, her time of the month, the way of women is upon her. That's why she can't stand up, which that excuse, she's not the first one to use it, and she's not the last, right? I remember, like, any time my coach said, we're playing dodgeball today, like, five hands went up. Like, <laughs> yep. And it's right to the bleachers. Got it. Like, so whether she's just using that excuse or it's legit, <laughs> we, I think it's pretty funny. <laughs> Either way, the reason why it works is because Laban couldn't conceive that Rachel, even if she's lying, would treat his gods that way. Why? Well, remember, man, Israel's learning. This is the Exodus generation hearing this. And this is the first place in the Bible that idols are talked about that should get our attention. And they're coming out of a culture that was saturated with idolatry. It's got its hooks in them. 400 years of slavery, I mean, their idea of who God is passed down through the generations is all messed up. And that's all they've seen is Egypt, the folks in power with all these different gods. They're going to be tempted with idols. We know the story. He can't conceive that she would treat his gods this way because in the ancient world, that was the most unclean, impure time of the, the month for the woman. Like she was considered unclean just outside of Israel, but then specifically in Israel in Leviticus 15, God teaches his people like, yeah, you will be unclean during that time. And everything that comes in contact with you is considered unclean and to be discarded. It's been made unholy, impure. And so he can't conceive that she would treat his gods that way. But that is exactly how God wants his people to see idols and to see false gods. Because at best, they're just a little piece of wood and stone that people are praying to. At worst, it's demonic. It's demonic. It's absolutely demonic, where people are trying to manipulate spirits to get what they want, and it takes them away, and their worship away from the one true God. He can't conceive that she would do something so sacrilegious, so he doesn't even ask her to get up. He's like, no, she wouldn't do that. What it says about Rachel and her view of the idols, I think it speaks volumes. But here's what struck me as crazy in thinking about this part of the story. Is the language is about the same that the writer of Hebrews uses in chapter 10 to talk about professing believers who fall away from the gospel. It's the same language that's used to speak about people who at one time claimed to be Christians, loved the Lord, and have walked away from the faith. Listen to Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. 
For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I think the connection is valid because it was that same generation It was the Exodus generation that is held up in the New Testament as a prime example of apostasy. They fell away. They didn't enter into the promised land. God made them walk around the wilderness until they died and let their kids go in. Why? What the Bible tells us is they didn't have faith. They didn't trust God and that manifests itself in their idolatry and their turning away from the word of the Lord and seeking out other gods, seeking purpose and meaning and other things, seeking hope and salvation in other places. And so then the warning comes to us. The same path that starts with just neglecting God's word, just neglecting time with the Lord, can lead to, and I hope you see it, trampling the body of Jesus under your foot, profaning his blood, what's he saying? Treating it like filthy rags. That's heavy. That's graphic. The way that Laban couldn't conceive that his daughter would treat his demonic gods is saying, Those who walk away from the gospel, those who walk away from the church, that's how they now treat Jesus. They see his sacrifice as meaningless and empty and a throwaway. Trample it underfoot. That's what they would do with salt in the ancient world to clear a path. It was only, that's all it was good for, certain types of salt. You just throw it on the ground, it's only good for stepping on. That's how they now view Jesus, to profane the blood, to say, oh no, his blood is unholy, it's impure, it's dirty, it's a lie. It's intense. And I want to say it for two reasons. One, because that's the warning we need to learn from the Exodus generation. They had the greatest moment of salvation in the Old Testament, and they fell away by and large. Not everyone, but by and large. Now is a picture of our ultimate salvation that we have in Christ. He's saying we need to learn the lessons. We need, we need to have the same kind of faith and we need to heed the same kind of warnings. But I want to say this, because sometimes people hear, Christians hear the warnings in Hebrews and they get spun out. They get spun out and they, because they've sinned, because you sin. Until like this point, I've been doing this, salvation, heaven, until you get here, you're going to sin. And Christians will sin and they'll read a warning like in Hebrews and they'll think, 
It's too late. I've committed apostasy. There's no, there's no hope for me. And what I always say to somebody in that situation is this. Are you ready to say that Jesus isn't God? Are you ready to say that his sacrifice meant nothing? In fact, it was a joke and he was just some guy that died on a cross and his body should have been ripped down and trampled over. And his blood that was spilt meant absolutely nothing. It was unholy, it was impure, it was just blood. Are you willing to say that? Of course, the answer is no. Absolutely, I would never say that. A believer, somebody who has tasted the truth of the word of God, has been sealed with the Spirit, would never say that about Jesus. It's okay, well, you, you haven't committed apostasy. But there is a warning. So for the believer, we hear that, and what it does is turn our attention back to Jesus. And for those who are on that path, who maybe, yeah, grew up among us, and at, at some point worshiped with us, maybe even served alongside of us and have walked away, they need to hear that warning and realize, I am rejecting the only sacrifice that has ever been given that can save me from my sin. And the hope there is that they would repent and turn back. The only person who is in a hopeless situation who is alive is the person who is knowingly rejecting Jesus. But if they'll just repent, yeah, as long as you're rejecting Jesus, you can't be saved because there's salvation given in no other name. But if you'll repent of that and trust in Christ, you can be saved no matter who you are or what you've done. That's the hope of the gospel. So what do we do? Man, we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus. We look to how God has been faithful in the stories of scripture. We look back to how he's been faithful in our own story. And we look forward to what he's promised us. And we trust, yeah, he's able. So I'll hold fast to those promises. I'll heed the warnings, but I'll hold fast to those promises, looking to Jesus, our great savior, the one who led a greater exodus, freed us from sin and death, and hell, so that all we have to look forward to is an eternity of worshiping him. Pray with me. Lord God, love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you came to save us. Thank you that you led such a perfect exodus out of sin into righteousness. I pray, Lord, that you would save souls tonight. I pray that you, in your kindness, lead, lead people to repentance and faith that don't know you. And I pray as a church that we would be mindful of the warnings and hold fast to your promises and, and, and keep our eyes on you, trusting in your goodness and your word. Love you, Lord, in Christ's name, amen.